0: You are listening to the Green Industry Perspectives podcast presented by Single Ops, a podcast created for green industry professionals looking for best practices, tactics, and tips in running their tree care or landscape business. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Green Industry Perspectives podcast presented by Single Ops. I am Jay Wirth. I'm the content marketing manager here at Single Ops. And uh, we have a real... uh, And I know I've said that a couple of times this season already, but we really do have a a special treat today. One of my favorite people on the planet. And I I mean that seriously. I've worked with this guy. I've worked for him. He's really uh, just a wealth of knowledge. Um, He was a great, great boss to have. And uh, we're very lucky to have Bob Kandratavich, lovingly known as Bob K, (laughs) at his company because it's a little easier to say. Excellent but, uh, job with the name, Jay. You did a great job with it. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I practiced. I practiced a couple of times before <laughs> we got started. Uh, but Bob has just a tremendous wealth of, of background in the industry. And so, Bob, thanks so much for being on the show today.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. I look forward to it. I'm always interested in talking with you, Jay, because I had the same respect for you that you had for me. So it was mutual. And I uh-huh. always enjoy having a conversation with you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Although I suspect that that kind of developed later. I don't know if you remember when I interviewed, Bob. <laughs> I don't think you were very impressed to start with. <laughs> Perhaps
1: that's true. But, but I mean, that is, you know, that's a testament to your skill and resilience and your ability to win me over because you certainly have done that.
0: Oh, well, thank you. I, I very much appreciate it. Bob, today, I'm really interested, really excited to have you on. We're talking today something that you and I are both passionate about is talking about sustainability, you know, like how can people, you know, do what they're doing in the green industry and grow their business and do it in a way that's still uh, respectful and protecting the environment and the landscapes that we're entrusted with. So to that end, Bob, what are kind of the top three common threads that you see from, you know, tree care companies, landscape companies, lawn care companies that are doing sustainability well? What are those three key things that you see from the companies that are really crushing this? Yeah. From my
1: perspective now, again, it, it's sort of limited because I'm here in Pennsylvania, but but what I see and in some of the conferences I also attend is I think one of the main things is IPM. And and then that just revolves around integrated pest management, not always using a pesticide to solve a pest problem, basically. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of different ways to do that. Yep. We will talk about that, but I think that's one of the keys. Another thing is the use of native plants. I think that has come to the forefront as time has gone by. And part of that is, you know, is to create uh, natural environments that then promote pollinators and everything that goes with that. And I think that's critical. And then the other part that I like a lot about, you know, some of the landscapers and and a lot of the people that I know is the use of natural stone. And, And I can elaborate on that, but that stone it is natural in the landscape, and to use it the right way, I think it has a lot of benefits for sustainability too.
0: That's awesome. And we, to your point, we will kind of dive in and unpack each of these a little bit more. Uh, but Bob, just so that guests have a sense, you know, audience has a sense of who they're listening to and and kind of what your background and credentials are. Would you just give us a you know history here? I know you've been in the industry a while, and you've got just a ton of certifications, certificates, uh, initials behind your name. So if you would just give us a, a quick rundown there.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, my, my first foray into the landscape industry started in 1972. So this will be my 50th year in landscaping. I started my own mowing business and a small development. That got me going. I had a neighbor, a very lovely lady next to me, an older lady who had a beautiful garden full of pollinators plants and all that kind of stuff. And although I didn't understand it at the time, that influence was really great on me. And then I stayed in the landscape field up until college, went to school for geology, although it's not a green industry thing, it's relatable to the landscape industry. So that was kind of a nice tie. Absolutely. And I got an MBA too in finance and communications, but that gave me some business sense to throw into the whole mix. And I think that was a good thing too. And then of course, as I, you know, worked my way through the industry. I was an operations manager. And then I became, you know, a sales service specialist. I was a technician, a lawn technician, a tree technician. And then I was also a sales and marketing manager and an account manager. So I kind of got, went through all the possible, you know, almost parts of the industry and even was a landscape foreman at one time. So I've kind of had all those positions and that's been helpful to put it together too. And then as far as, you know, certifications go, I, I got those as I progressed through the industry, being a certified arborist, you know, being a certified horticulturalist with a sustainable certification too. And at at the time that I got that, I was only one of seven in the state of Pennsylvania, a certified ornamental landscape professional. I'm also a certified turf grass manager and a master gardener. So again, all those things kind of bring that unique perspective, I think. For the landscape industry so that's a brief rundown of of what i've been experienced you know in the green industry
0: yeah no nothing big nothing (laughs) no big deal
1: (laughs) i know it 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 doesn't seem big to me because it took such a long time to get there (laughs) um but i'm sure when you look at it in one you know quick snapshot it seems big
0: yeah, and this is this is part of why I'm excited to have you on the show. Um, it, it's just I think that there's so many people out there that can benefit from from that breadth of uh, of experience, not just in terms of the professional accomplishments, you know, the the certificates and stuff like that, but um, you really have been on on kind of both sides of it, right? Like you've been on the operation side the production side and, and having to go, go, go and get stuff done. And you've also been on the sales side. You've been in the office doing management. So you really do have a well-rounded perspective on the industry here.
1: Yeah. And I think that's very true. And I agree, Jay, that that gives you an insight into all that's going on because we all have our challenges in each one of those arenas. And, mm-hmm. and to think about all those things when you're doing something or working with somebody is important and i think i'm able to do that and and the other thing that that is kind of i think important in my perspective on things is is because i enjoy the natural environment and spend a lot of time out there hiking fishing photography and all that kind of stuff i get to look at it and maybe bring some of that back into the into the you know residential setting too which is kind of nice
0: mhm absolutely yeah bob uh, for for our listeners, is an is an avid fisherman. He's not. He's the guy that when you go out uh, into the woods and there's like three other people at, at the fishing hole, he's at. He's like, nah, this isn't good. I need. I need. It, I need it more isolated. And he'll go hike five miles into the woods to get a more isolated fishing hole. And
1: that's very true.
0: Yeah, I love him. <laughs> <laughs> Uh Yeah, it's uh It's. <laughs> he's definitely a lover of the natural world. So, when you talk about these three things. And by the way, I agree with you that, that having that, um, just to back up for a second, that experience is really important. That's why one of the things I always did, I, I was exposed to myself as a salesperson, and I asked my salespeople to do as much as it was practical, was to get out and have some field experience. It just gives you a whole different sense of what you're selling when you've got some field experience and vice versa, you know, it'd be great if you're listening to this and you have, you know, crews and there's kind of some friction between production and sales, maybe have some ride-alongs both ways, right? A lot of times we just make sales guys go on a ride-along with <laughs> production guys to get their, their insight. But that goes both ways. If, you know, your, your technicians, your crewmen, uh, crew leaders, they see what your salespeople have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. I think that just only improves the organization.
1: Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree with that more, Jay. And I think that is one of the things we shared, and I think that made our relationship mm-hmm. work well, is because we both had came from those experiences, and we tried to incorporate yep. those into everything we were doing. Yeah, and I, and I uh, you know, enjoyed that, and I enjoyed having those perspectives that we shared, because then we could look at selling things the same way and think about them the same
0: way. And I think that was made us successful. Mm-hmm. I agree so going back to these these three things that we talked about the first one you mentioned is IPM and I, I think this is really really kind of critical I think a lot of times this is probably something that that folks that are just starting out struggle with more but even some some bigger companies you know once you get to like maybe a corporate size it's just tough to do this well you know integrated pest management give us a quick. Rundown of, of what that looks like for you. What do you mean by that? What, what does, in your mind, what does good IPM look like?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good question. Good IPM, I think, really starts with the individual who is assessing the property. I think that individual has to have a good depth of knowledge of, of everything that's available to solve a particular problem. Yep. I think that's one of the keys to being successful at integrated pest management because if you know all the options that exist, then when you come to a specific situation you're best able to, you know, use the option that's the best one that might not be, you know, the most pest user one, but the one that that you maybe you're using a little bit of pesticides and maybe you're using changing some plants. And maybe you're looking at what else is out there in the environment. Are there ladybugs out there feeding on those aphids, for example? And so do you want to spray something that's going to knock out those ladybugs too? Is that aphid problem big enough to actually warrant spraying that? All those things, I think, come into play. And some of the plants too, you know, you have a perennial plant that might be, you know, being affected by aphids, do you really need to save that particular plant. Maybe that plant's not the right plant in the right place. Mm. And maybe it's okay if that plant doesn't survive, you know, and something else takes over, that's a better option for that space. So I think all those things come into play and pest populations are also, which I just alluded to, are a big part of that. You have some Japanese beetles feeding on a tree. Are those Japanese beetles really affecting that tree or is there just enough damage to cause that tree not to look maybe as exactly the way you'd like it to look? But it's not a problem where it requires a pesticide to really solve that problem Mm -hmm. because it doesn't need to be solved with a pesticide. So and also teaching clients, you know, you know, clients often want this pesticide free environment. Mm -hmm. Well, is that realistic? You know, in reality, it's not. Okay. So there's going to be some things around. So you have to show them what's good and what's not so good, but there's got to be a balance. I, I'll give you an example. I recently had a lady customer of mine who was upset because there were birds pooping on her hardscape, Okay, <laughs> All right. So now that, that's the extreme. Okay. We're going to a person who can't even tolerate a bird nest in a tree close to her hardscape. And then you got to talk to her about that and tell her, well, there's baby birds in that nest, you know, and then she starts to soften up a little bit. So if you can bring some of those things into the fold and talk about what those birds mean to the environment, hopefully you can turn some people around and have them think a little bit differently about it. And I think that's part of integrated pest management, too, is making people aware of the whole
0: ecosystem and what each one of those parts mean to that ecosystem. There's so much to unpack in what you just said. <laughs> so I'm gonna try and get it all in there. Because <laughs> I I could not I could not agree with you any more strongly. One of the things that you said is talking about having the available options. And so I think in my mind, one of the things that you really helped me with in my career and, and kind of opened my eyes up to is getting the proper diagnosis, right? All right. Like you gotta you gotta know what you're dealing with before you can even start thinking about options. Oh, absolutely. Um, So, you know, really up in your game when it comes to diagnosing problems on on turf, problems on a tree, a landscape plant.
1: Yes, Jay, you're absolutely right. Okay. Yeah, because, you know, if you can diagnose the problem, then, like you said, then the options are before you. You can talk intelligently and knowledgeably to that customer or client, and they're going to feel comfortable with what you come up. Because they're going to have confidence in you. And I think that's a critical thing. And when we were talking about, like, for example, spider mites on a dwarf Alberta spruce, well, the dwarf Alberta spruce probably isn't the right plant in the right place. But did you know, you know, you talk to the customer, you can take your hose and wash that plant down once a week and probably manage those mites. So that's a way, you know, of just being able to show a customer what they can do to help with a pest problem that won't need a pesticide. Or get them to maybe switch that plant, but there's different ways to approach that. I think.
0: And to your point, especially about that dwarf Alberta, right? How many times do you see somebody go out and tell a customer when a, a dwarf Alberta is in decline, you, somebody else has told them, "Oh, it's a spider mite problem." When in reality, it's planted about six inches from a brick side of a house, and it's just being cooked, oh, right? Yeah, it's not. Sometimes it, and that's why I think some of that diagnosis and understanding. You know, you mentioned the right plant in the right place. Understanding that dynamic, I think, is just really, really critical.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and you know, like you just alluded to that dwarf Alberta spruce, and especially in that in that hot environment, a southern exposure, and oftentimes they're in a southern or western exposure. And so it's just aggravating the mite problem where if it wasn't a Northern or Eastern exposure, it might not have that many problems. So, you know, some of those Mm -hmm. little subtleties, you know, make a big difference and you can guide clients, you know, to make better decisions about stuff like that.
0: Yeah. And luckily for us, I've never, well, maybe you have, I've never run into someone that was so attached to their dwarf Alberta that we had to transplant it or save it, you know, (laughs) but I have
1: run into a few people, you know, of course, we have a German community in Lancaster and some of those Germans like that, you know, perfectly conical little, uh, oh, yeah. and it fits into their, you know, what, what they probably came from in Germany. And so for people like that, I understand that though, I understand it, accept it. And so somehow we have to work with that.
0: But that's more about the aesthetic than a sentimental yes. attachment. That's kind of where it's like, you can, you can replace that aesthetic with something else. <laughs> you can <laughs> So no, yeah, I think that's all awesome. And and again, it goes back to if you don't know your plant material and you don't know how to properly diagnose, you might just be spraying a miticide on that tree. Yeah. And it's on. really not ever going to be productive. So yeah, I, I agree with that. There's other things too, like, you know, you're talking about right plant, right place, kind of environmental considerations. What about sanitation?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, you know, especially on the disease side, you know, some of that leaf litter and stuff that can... Create some of the disease problems for long periods of time, I think is very important. So teaching customers how to prune, like to prune a plant. If it Mm -hmm. has a problem, maybe you need to prune it below a specific part on that Mm -hmm. plant, say 10 or 12 inches below so that that disease or whatever's going on with that plant doesn't continue, you know, and it's just being aware of the things that you can do as a, as a client. Because it's a partnership. You know, I think IPM is actually a partnership, which we didn't speak about it, but it's a partnership between you and the client to keep those plants and that landscape as healthy as possible. And I think the education and part of that sanitation and things they can do make a big difference in how successful that is.
0: Again, I don't think I could agree with you anymore. You're really, really good at this when it comes to communication with a client, because for some reason... And maybe it's just you know the company you work for, uh, Tomlinson Bomberger, is a a well-established company in um, you mentioned in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So maybe it's just because you've been with the company for so long and have developed these deeper relationships. But you have a higher than average, I would say, percentage of customers who are really willing to partner with you and who are really invested in that relative to the other account managers and other people that work in a similar role in the company. And so that tells me you've got to be really, really good at this. So uh, kind of two questions and they're, they're both about communication when you've got someone who's skeptical about using let's like, say a chemical control an insecticide or something how do you communicate that and then on the flip side of that because i've run into this too there's those people who want you to just they think chemicals fix everything and you just you know just spray it just spray it just spray it and they, they insist on it and it's like well you know i can spray it till it runs into the <laughs> into the the gutter and it's still not going to do anything. It's not going to help the plant. How do you communicate both sides of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a challenge. And it does often come back to that relationship. Does, as you pointed out, Jay, does that customer have the trust in you to advise them for the best possible solution? And developing that trust over a period of time really helps you to be able to use some of those options. So I think that was a great question you had. Um, I think when when you have somebody who is really hesitant to use a chemical solution to a problem, sometimes what I'll talk about is how much time and energy do you want to put into solving something? Because because Mm -hmm. maybe you have, for example, a lawn, for example, that's full of violets. And that is something that this particular customer doesn't want to have but doesn't want to use a chemical option to solve a problem like that. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. solve that without chemicals is is almost impossible, as you well know. Yep. <laughs> so, so you need to explain, you know, what it's going to take to do that. And I think if you do that the right way, you can get them back to saying, hey, maybe using a pesticide once or twice to change this whole situation up front, is way better than maybe having to use a lot of pesticides down the road to solve this problem, you know, in a different kind of way. Mm-hmm. So so I think sometimes that is the way you need to approach something like that. And then the opposite side, you know, do you have somebody who wants to use chemicals all the time, I think you go back to pesticide resistance. That's one thing that I like to talk about. Yeah. You know, and how golf courses, I often use golf courses as great examples because golf courses are the, are one of our You know they're they're a landscape that's almost perfect but it's perfect because they're spraying a ton of pesticides but they're rotating different pesticides they're doing all this kind of stuff and they're still having problems you know so even though they're using all this stuff they still got problems so pesticides aren't always the answer to everything Mm -hmm. you know it goes back to right plant right place and that goes to grass as well as it goes to shrubs and trees and I talk about that quite a lot about the grass types that they have
0: yeah absolutely and and I think too the other thing that like when you're talking about education is kind of educating customers on what you as the provider the service provider what you can control and what you can't control right absolutely uh, and because we absolutely. ran into this all the time Tomlinson I worked there Tomlinson bomberger does a lot of residential turf care and and what was it 2018. I think we had 153 days of precipitation that year. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you can't. You can't control that. Like there's no, There's nothing. It doesn't matter how much you're paying us. We can't control the fact that it rained overnight. You know, in July, and it was 70 degrees, and then the next day it was 90 degrees, and you develop Pythium blight, even right. if we're treating for fungicide in those conditions, and those conditions persisted for like a good solid month. They did. It was, <laughs> it was just next to impossible to give somebody that that really really disease-free. Even if they were paying for fungicides on a regular basis, there was so much breakthrough. That was the, the worst gray leaf spot season I'd ever seen on turf. And I don't think I was alone there. I think a lot of other professionals would have said the same thing in that, in that region.
1: And I think, I just want to add to that. I think that's a great comment you made and, and relating to turf and fungicides because five years ago, and you, and you remember this, Jay, we at Thomas and Obama had a turf disease program that had three turf disease applications and yep. that took care of most of the problems. Well, now we're up to five or six right? because that environment for disease has increased over the summer and expanded. And so wouldn't the better solution be to change grass types and not continually Mm -hmm. apply six fungicides to keep a lawn looking good when you could change to tall fescue and maybe get away with one a year, if that. So, I mean, that is a great comment that you made and how things have changed and Mm -hmm. the more chemicals you need as things you know, as maybe we get a little bit warmer and maybe those plants aren't as resistant as they used to be. It's all that.
0: Yeah. And I do have the flip side of that. The other side, because I agree about the resistance and changing some things around. I do know, I have a couple of professional contacts who swear, you know, like I actually know a whole company that does this. It's a hundred percent chemical free. Now they do more mostly like um, beds and and landscaping, but I also know a, a tree care professional and they swear there's never a need to use never ever a need to use a pesticide a chemical what would you say to that to that crowd
1: i would say that i think part of it has to do again with education what the client what the client expects and Bingo. how you manage that part of it i think that's part yep. of it i do think that that we probably use way more pesticides than we need to okay i mean that I'm agreed gonna- that any question. I mean, I don't know if we can be pesticide free, but I think that if we would manage the kind of plants we're putting in the ground, manage expectations a little bit better and think about that whole ecosystem, I certainly think we could we could
0: really reduce the pesticide usage. I, mean, I, I agree 100%. I think it's my personal take on this. And then we'll move on because I, w- I do want to hear about uh, what you're saying about native plants because this is something yes. that's also very interesting to me. But my thought there is I think it entirely depends on the environment in which you're treating for that mm-hmm. plant and the, mm-hmm. the application and also what types of pests you're trying to treat for. Yes. And so something yeah. that is really prevalent in central Pennsylvania and just last week I saw a news story they found it west of Des Moines now is the spotted lanternfly. Uh, it's this invasive pest from China. They're sap suckers, and there's just a tremendous, tremendous amount of honeydew. For those of you that aren't familiar with it, that they secrete, that leads to this really slippery, black, sooty mold. So let's say you've got a college campus, or you've got an industrial, you know, commercial property that's lined with maple trees that these spotted lanternfly just love. You're going to have a, a slippery, nasty walkway underneath those trees, that's a lawsuit waiting to happen. I think to say that you can control all of that naturally without without treating those trees is kind of naive. That's my personal, like I think it, to your point, the word you use, Bob, is it depends on the customer's expectations.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? And, and, like you have to really get to that. And if they expect it to be totally free, well, then you're going to have to use chemical in a situation like that.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, part of the challenge with that, Jay, is that it seems like almost every tree or plant has come up with a problem because who would have thought red maples would be a problem plant (laughs) right right you know and it was just like ash trees who would have thought ash trees would have been such a big problem plant and the emerald ash borer you know ran through those so it's really hard to come up with plants these days that don't have something going on with Mm -hmm. them And again, though, you know, one of the things that that I think with the spotted lanternfly to help to help manage the pesticide side of it is to just treat the trees you need to treat. Like you said, in a college campus, in that situation, those trees probably need to be treated. Maybe if it's an important tree to homeowners on their landscape, they need to be treated. But there's so many trees that might get a little bit of a. I'll fly activity that don't need to be treated. And I think Agreed. that's
0: what we have to look at. Well, and, and we should be having conversations with clients about, for that pest in particular, about banding and scraping Yes, before we're even talking about pesticides. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah I agree with you entirely. Yeah. So native plants, you said that that was central yeah. to good sustainability too. Give us an idea why that's important. I know a lot of people say, well, it doesn't matter if it's a, if it's an American dogwood or a Cousa dogwood. What's it doesn't matter. Just stick it in the ground. Talk to us about why natives are are important.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think the key with natives, and I I just want to preface this by saying there are good plants out there that aren't natives, and they have their place, and we should use them, okay? I'm not one that says you have to use all native plants. I think it can be a nice balance. I think the native plants, though, probably support the ecosystem better than a non-native plant. And I think that is one of the keys. With the pollinators, with the predation of the pollinators with with the birds they support, all the thing that goes along with those native plants that' support that ecosystem, I think is is one of the, the key things to using native plants, and if they're used properly, they can be aesthetically
0: pleasing as well I agree, yeah, I think I think so often, especially when a client's looking for a certain aesthetic, it's easy to overlook. Using a native, if there's a non-native that's hardy or easily available, right? Mm-hmm. Like maybe it's just easier to get a hold of because that's what your grower is, your supplier is using or has in stock. So a couple of thoughts and questions around that. One, how can people listening to this, that may do you have any idea? Maybe you don't. So I don't want to put you on the spot if you yeah. don't know. Yeah. But people that are listening to this, what kind of conversation should they be having with their suppliers about natives? Should they be asking for those first and foremost to kind of increase demand? And, you know, we know that'll be a few years down the road then as, as growers catch on. But um, what kind of conversations do you think people should be having with their suppliers right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the conversations should be around, can you produce some of these native plants, you know, that, that are aesthetically pleasing to the client? and make them available and i think that has happened to some extent i mean for example you Good. know like like a like a garden center around our area like Stauffers or espen shades or something a lot of times now they will tell you if it's a native plant or not a native plant and that's the plant awesome they never did you know those labels would just say this is a coneflower they wouldn't say that this purple coneflower is a native plant and so mm. that is helping people i think make better decisions and also those suppliers are thinking about that more because the awareness of the sustainability I think is out there. And I think I think everybody wants to make the best decision if they can, mm-hmm. especially if it can still give them that aesthetic. And I think I think a good example would be like in a wet area. Like a lot of times, you know, you have a wet area on a property, and if it's in the sun or something, people will say, Well, what what can I plant here? And if you look in the natural environment, you will see native red twig dogwoods all over swamps. Yep. No. So don't put a native dogwood on a hill facing south. Take that (laughs) native dogwood and throw it in an area where it gets some moisture, and it'll do way better, too. I've seen so many native dogwoods get disease problems and, and scale problems because they're put, you know, it's a native plant put in the wrong spot.
0: Agreed. Plus, that that red twig gives you some color in the winter.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful plant. But if you put it in the wrong spot, it's not going to look that great. And I think so right plant, right place applies to natives as well. Just because it's a native Mm -hmm. plant doesn't mean
0: that it doesn't need to be in the right place. Agreed. Now, what kind of conversation should people be having with their customers to try and encourage them to try and think about native plantings or encourage native plantings as they're thinking about their landscape design?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question, too. I think it it comes down to, you know, the landscape designer or the service provider needs to help guide that client towards some native options. I mean, I remember a client I had, she wanted a large tree and it needed to grow up and screen her porch. And so we were talking about different options and all these things, and I suggested a tulip tree. And she said, well, what's a tulip tree? Well, we went into what a tulip tree was. And it turned out to be the perfect plant. It grew tall and straight, you know, on 30 feet up in the air and screened yep. and she got to see tulip flowers, you know, which not yep. a lot of people get to see on a tree. So it served a lot of things, you know, aesthetically, as well as, you know, creating that privacy screen for her, but it was a native plant. And I think, you know, thinking about what the client wants and then coming up with solutions that they can see as a as a viable option i think is a real real good good way to get those people going that direction and then they can ask some good questions too and when we talk about something like what's the difference you know between a coneflower and, and salvia well maybe the coneflower is going to attract more uh, native pollinators than the salvia will and and then also those coneflowers give you seeds for finches and then finches feed on mm. the cauliflower. So there's so much more that comes from some of those plants that you have to
0: make people aware of. And what I'm getting out of this, what you're saying too, is it's not just about educating your customers on the environmental benefits. You have to know <laughs> what those natives are, what the benefits okay. are, other other parts of the ecosystem that they support so that you can have an educated conversation yes, with, that's with the smart. client.
1: Mm-hmm. That's very true, Jay. And I I'm all about trying to bring that into the fold. You know, and oak trees are an example where they bring so mm-hmm. many birds and so many pollinators. You know, so, so, so if a person has some room, why not try a white oak or some oak tree that's a really nice tree that could provide so much to
0: that landscape? Mm-hmm. I agree. I think that's awesome. Yeah. How can people uh, listening to this, you know, other landscape company owners or operations managers, people that are responsible for sourcing plant material. Do you have any idea how they can locate natives for where they live? You know, like where should they be looking? Like how do they how do they begin to educate themselves on on the plants that are native to their part of the country?
1: Yeah, I think one of the great resources for that, I mean, is the Master Gardeners. And there are Master Gardeners in pretty much every state. And that group of people who is really driven towards native and natural landscapes has a great resource of of plant, you know, and oftentimes they'll have sales or they can lead you to plant sales or they can lead you to vendors who have have native plants. And then of course, you know, the internet and Googling native plants, there's a lot of suppliers that, that now with mail order being so efficient, you know, you can get plants from almost anywhere and any place and even in good shape from a mail order, you know, supplier. So I think there's a lot out there if you just need to look, but master gardeners, you know, extension offices in every state are a great place to start.
0: Yeah, so figure out which state school has a really good extension program and, yeah. and start to tap into the Master Gardener network there. That's yeah. really great advice. Yeah,
1: I think that's a great place to start, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And I know the the Master Gardeners in Pennsylvania, and I, I live in Ohio now, I haven't had a chance to get into the extension system here uh, through Ohio State, but I know in, in Pennsylvania through Penn State, the Master Gardeners are very active. Um, yeah. They want to answer those questions for you, so. They do, I, they do. I, I imagine it's very similar in other states. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I hope and, so. no, and,
1: they're, and they're very knowledgeable and they, they, you know, brought a different perspective to my education. And I appreciate that perspective because it's something I use every day.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. The last thing you mentioned was natural stone. And yeah. I got a bit, this one kind of threw me. I think that I thought maybe that's an aesthetic preference, but I can see some applications where that might actually make a difference. Um, can you talk talk about that a little bit? Yeah. um,
1: Natural stone. And when, you know, when you go, if you ever hike into Pennsylvania (laughs) or some of the other states like ours, you know, especially in the Appalachian mountains, all you see is stone. I mean, there's stone everywhere. There's stone walls. I mean, there's, there's stone big rocks, there's small rocks, there's stream beds full of stone. And, you know, part of the stone, I think it's advantage to the ecosystem is besides, you know, it provides a place for, for things to hide, for things to reproduce, for things to thrive in, because underneath those rocks in the stream, there's all kinds of organisms going on that then feed the fish, and then the fish feed the birds, and, you know, you can take that really a long way, and some of mm-hmm. those stones help to, to filter out some of the pollutants and add some limestone, for example, reduce the acidity in the soil. There's so many things that stone can do and i think you know like for example a stone wall a stone wall can provide provide a place for toads or for, provide a place for different kind of chipmunks and things like that mm-hmm. that support the whole ecosystem and you know it's a great way you know we you briefly alluded to it, but erosion and and we deal with mm. it a lot as landscapers i think and i think the natural stone you know to help solve some of that erosion creates like a fake stream bed Which aesthetically is pleasing, you know, brings a natural uh, piece of an of 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 into the environment, and it also creates, you know, a place where other organisms or things can survive, maybe a wolf spider or something like that. There's all kinds of things that go into play with natural stone, and I think it has. It's such a big part of of the natural landscape. I think bringing it into our landscape is is just a great thing. And, you know, you have a a boulder in your lawn. Well, what's living, a boulder in your landscape? Well, what's living under that boulder? There could be salamanders under that boulder. Right. And again, you know, you created that by bringing those boulders into that landscape.
0: Yeah. So I hear you saying this, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're talking more about using it in terms of like if you're going to use it for retention, like you're going to use it as a garden wall or something. Right? You're talking about like more like a dry stack rather than sure. like, hey, yes. let's let's cement something in place. You're talking about leaving things as natural as possible when you're bringing that stone in. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Or, or you know, Jay, just like a natural flagstone walkway with some spaces in between because aesthetically mm-hmm. that's losing. But then you could have things living under that, you know, those flags. Agreed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was living up in the woods at another uh, residence of mine and I I had a small stone wall and I was taking it apart to re, you know, just to refurbish it and get it back in place. I found three or four salamanders underneath that bottom stone. Mm. So that's a great thing to see and realize then well, what that stone is bringing to that, you know, landscape.
0: No, that all that all makes a ton, a ton of sense to me. One of the things that you and I, as we were talking about what, what to make this podcast, uh, the theme of this podcast talk about, um, that I think is really impressive and that you've done really well at your own personal property. Because Bob and I used to live very close to each other. My wife and I would go out for a walk in the evening and we'd run across Bob out in, in his garden. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that I think you've done really, really well and that that a lot of people think is incompatible, we used to hear this all the time, was that... Lawn care in particular, lawn care companies, you can't, have a, you can't have a nice lawn and protect the environment and protect the soil and, and the pollinators and things like that. The two are kind of incompatible. And I wanted to just, as we're kind of wrapping up the show here real quick, just touch on that real quickly. Because I think that that's by extension, people begin to think that anything kind of manufactured, and maybe this is circling a little bit back to that IPM conversation, but I think people kind of think they're incompatible. And I think that it's just about how you prioritize what you use and when and how much and you can still have it because bob has a has a thriving uh pollinator population on his property and he also has the nicest lawn in the entire neighborhood so talk you know the people that that are running into that uh kind of objection from their customers can they say and what should they be doing to try not just not just the lip service side that you give to the customer but what should they actually be doing to try and reconcile those two
1: Yeah, I I think that's a great challenge for most people, but it is also a thing that I think is attainable. And And you brought that up that I have been able to do that and it's taken some time to do it, but I have been able to do that. And I think, again, we go back, one of the things we go back to is right plant, right place. Can we get a grass type, first of all, that doesn't require the amount of pesticides to keep it looking nice as some of the other grass types? And I think that is the that is the key to that, because in that development, for example, I had the foresight to provide my own seed to the builder. Yes, <laughs> you so <she> did. <laughs> there, you know, I know what they're seeding with. I know that at that grass type requires a lot of uh, chemicals and pesticides to keep it looking nice, and so immediately I changed the grass type right up front. And that made a huge difference and gave me Mm -hmm. an advantage in creating a nice lawn. But then also timing. You talk about timing and and also, you know, mowing properly. When to mow. Yeah. Cultural practices. Yep. Turn those clippings. You know, if it's a hot day, don't mow your lawn in the morning on a hot day and let it, you know, dry out during the day when it's 90 degrees outside. Mow that lawn in the evening. Mow that lawn another day when it's not so hot. You know. Think about all those kinds of little things. Leave those clippings, let that organic matter get back into the soil to help those plants. You know, we had we had started some granular aeration, you know, some organic granular aeration, mm-hmm. and that has worked really well. I think you know, looking wow. at some of those products that are out there, you know, that can be used to to make a thick, healthy lawn. And then, that thick, healthy lawn, you don't need crabgrass control. You might not need much weed control. Because that lawn is so thick and healthy, you need very little pesticides to keep it looking nice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's there's a really good, I think, good diversity of organic fertilizers out there. And I think companies are creating new organic products all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's a great thing because there's a lot out there that we're testing and trying. And I think they're going to provide some solutions to some of this stuff, too. So all that comes into play.
0: Yeah. And that was one of the things that I really loved about my time there and about what Tomlinson Bomberger is doing is, you know, they were kind of, at least in our market, um, and I think probably nationally, we're one of the first to really say, hey, let's look at ways that we can do this and do it at a very high level, but reduce the amount that we're using and got really into the soil sciences of it. And I think that that plays a huge part in it too. You know, when you address the underlying, the foundation from which those plants are growing, I think that makes a big difference.
1: Yeah. And we didn't talk a lot about soil testing, but I do a lot of soil testing for a lot of situations because I Mm -hmm. think knowing that nutrient makeup, the organic matter and all that kind of stuff is really, really essential to doing the right thing and, and setting up a solution to some of those challenges.
0: And truthfully, it saves you a little bit of um, headache on the backside of dealing with a client when they say, well, hey, I've been paying you to do this for the last you know, seven years and my wall looks like this. And you can say to them, well, hey, we tested the soil three times in that seven years and we recommended that you you amend the soil. It was way low on potassium and that's why your plants are struggling and you never did anything about it. You know, We suggested this to you. We recommended it to you three different times and told you this was critical to the plant health.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, that is a great way to go back. And it's also a great
0: way to see. And not, not as like a smart aleck, but just to be able yeah. to say, hey, well, look, you know, we did the right thing by you professionally.
1: Yes. And those results also, it's great to see what works and doesn't work because you take a soil test, do something, and then take another soil test a year or two later and yep. see what's happened there. And then then that helps you to prescribe the right thing because you know what works and what doesn't work mm-hmm. and how to fix certain problems. Yeah, it's, it's so critical, I think.
0: And that comes back around to diagnosis and knowing <coughs> knowing does. what you what you need to be uh, treating for. So, Absolutely. no, I, I agree with that entirely. I think that that's been awesome, uh, Bob. As we just wrap up the show here, I'm I'm going to throw you one question that we haven't uh, that I didn't discuss with you ahead of time. So, I hope you'll forgive me. Yes. One of the questions we sometimes ask our guests is, "What are you excited for about the future? Uh, as you think about the industry and what's coming up here, and what's kind of getting your motor? What What's new and exciting to you?" Yeah,
1: I think what it is to me is, is going to some of the conferences and seeing some very large projects that are being done in a sustainable way. Mm. And then those projects that are done in that sustainable way offer kind of a model for people to follow. And, and some of those yes. some of the sustainable things also are in places where a lot of people get to see them an example that we have in the in Pennsylvania is the Penn State Arboretum came up with about a 2 acre natural garden they mm. that recently and so that was planted by master gardeners and now it's out there for anyone to tour or look at and see and you can imagine the amount of people that go to Penn State so the amount of right. people that are going to be exposed to something like that those are the things that make me excited that, that some of those examples are starting to pop up and people are getting a chance to really see what they can look like.
0: And when you say, a na- just to clarify, when you say a natural garden, you mean it's planted with all natives or you mean they're not using any pesticides or what does that it's look like? It's planted with natives.
1: They're not using any pesticides. They have stone, they have water, they have meadows, they have all kinds of stuff. That's, that's
0: amazing. There. Yeah. It's a, it's I need to make spot. a trip now. <laughs>
1: you do. <laughs> you need to check it out. Yeah, it's a great yeah. spot.
0: Yeah, that's great. Bob, thank you so much for your time today. If people have questions, they want to follow up with you, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you?
1: I would say email would probably be the best. And um, that's B-O-B-K at tbl com. I think that would be the best way and I'll be happy to answer any questions I can. I still have a job, so it might take me a little time <laughs> to get back to people, but but I'll do my best to respond You know, within 24 to 48 hours and give them an answer.
0: Bob, thank you so much for your time today. It has been just an absolute pleasure having this conversation with you. I know it's something that we're both passionate about, so this has been a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, it was great talking to you again, Jay, and it's always nice to see you. Yeah, thanks.